want to welcome all of our listeners and viewers to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in media, business, and tech. And today, joining us is Maria Weaver. Maria Weaver is CMO of Comcast Advertising. Let's jump in and get to know Maria. Maria, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I'm well. I'm happy to be here with you. Awesome. We're excited you're with us for... Those who aren't familiar with you or don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing for a living and a little bit about your expertise? So I, as you mentioned, I'm the CMO of Comcast Advertising, which is the ad sales division of Comcast. And we have two sides of it. One is effective and the other one is freewheel. And so I oversee everything from the brand marketing, sales marketing, product marketing, et cetera, across that footprint. I've been there for about four years. And prior to that, spent my time in, in the digital space, in the premium television space, but primarily on the marketing side with a little stint of overseeing revenue. So I, I do enjoy, I enjoy TV. Excellent. Excellent. Before you started doing all that, tell us about where you're from, how you grew up, and uh, give us a sense a little bit about your background. So I often tease that I'm like a small town girl from a big city because I'm born and raised in, in New York City, in Manhattan. I still live in New York City, in Manhattan. I actually live down the street from where I grew up. My office is on 46th Street. I went to high school on 46th Street. It's very bizarre. Um, so yeah, so I grew up, I went to performing arts high school, which some people, if you're old enough, know it as the fame school. I was in musical theater, dancer, actress. And started off in college in that same field until I decided I wanted to make a living and not spend my time uh, chasing my next gig and switched my major over to marketing. Um, and my first job was at Rainbow in the spot cable world. And while I was there, I went back to school and got my uh, master's degree in design management. So my journey has been primarily in the entertainment space since I was very, very young. Just started off kind of in the front of the, of the camera, if you will, and on stage, and now really enjoy being behind the scenes, pushing content forward rather than being a part of the content. Uh, that, that's really interesting. Tell us a little bit about how you think that sort of shaped your identity and sort of formed you know, your, your culture and you. Well, what I will say, how I got into acting was my dad, who was an attorney, wanted me to take an acting class when I was seven or eight years old to start to learn public speaking. He didn't know that I'd fall in love with acting and then end up wanting to take that track. That was definitely not in his plan at all. But what I will say is that that foundation of being able to speak in front of large audiences is critical to what I do now and, and my ability to do it now and, and certainly did shape who I am. I grew up in an activist household and family background of, of activism. And so that has definitely shaped my personal kind of my personal life. And so those, those things come together in, in that way. You know, um, everyone sort of has a starting point in their career path. How did that begin for you? The starting point of my career, exactly. Or just how did you uh, decide that you said, you know, I really want to sort of move into marketing and, and did you um, have they sort of help you start to move in that direction? Yeah, so my first job was at Rainbow Advertising, which technically doesn't even exist anymore. It's part of Cablevision. It was the ad sales division. What I knew is that I wanted to 
as I mentioned, I had switched from kind of being in the theater, wanting to be on television to wanting to figure out how I could do something within television. I don't recall now exactly how I heard about that role, but I do remember going on the interview pretty unprepared. You know, there wasn't an internet. There wasn't really a way to do research and who knew what spot cable was, right? I mean, so I just went in. And they, at the time, were trying to staff up their sales division. And so my first role was as a sales assistant. Um, You know, cable was so new and young at the time. And, and so there wasn't a lot of criteria for, for entry. They just really wanted people who were, who wanted to try something different, do something new. And that seemed to fit with my ambition and what I was looking for. But I will say my, you know, that being my first ever job certainly did shape me. Sometimes I say it warped me because the things that we focused on, um, the products we focused on, were sports was was a big part of it, right? So Rainbow Cablevision owned Sports Channel at the time. And we had channels in, in most of the major markets, New York, Chicago, Boston, et cetera. Celtics were big then. The Bulls were big then, et cetera. And so I worked with a lot of former jocks, a lot of guys. I was the only female. Forget being the only black person. I was like the only, I was the only female. Um, so there's just a lot of testosterone and it just was a very interesting kind of environment. So I learned to speak up. I learned what it, what it meant to have presence and be present in a very male dominated environment without feeling intimidated. But I was also well supported. The guys that were there were amazing. I can't claim a me too moment. Didn't have one. There's still a lot of them are good friends of mine to this day. And so it did prepare me in many ways for what became, you know, the next steps of my career. I stayed there a long time. The, the early days of cable was a lot of fun. You know, we, we were ad supported and we were premium. So we had a lot of money coming in, right? Like we had to pay for it and we were selling ads. <laughs> um, and so it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was in some ways, I tell people that it's kind of like what di- the digital space is now right like what we were then we were the, we were the disruptors we were disrupting broadcast television we were a little bit the wild wild west we didn't have a lot of regulation and so it was you know a real fun and interesting time maria as the as the cmo of comcast advertising what do you love about what you do today oh my goodness i love so many things about what i do i love that i have an opportunity to be creative every single day Hmm. that there is always a problem to be solved every single day, um, a challenge. I love that it's inherent within what we do, that there's a constant push-pull of dialogue, right? It's very rare that there's like a concrete, this is the way it must be, right? You can look at things through so many different lenses and, and to come to a solution. And so there's just truly just never a dull moment. Um, but then I just love that that's a part of my job, just a part of my, I can start off every day going, what is, what's going to be the challenge of the day? Oh, yeah. What are we going to do today, guys? Right? Like, what are we solving? How are we solving it? And that there's just so much energy in that. And especially when you're working in a medium like TV, which, you know, it's been around a long time. You, it, right. you, you be in a role within TV and it's kind of like, you know, you're just doing the same thing every day. And in my role, I will say it's never, two days are never alike. Mm-hmm. And, and the platform is always evolving too. So that must make it interesting as well. Yeah. You know, it's funny though, having been at a digital company, 
And I was at Interactive One, which is a division of Radio One for many years. That is a space where, you know, something's changing every single, like constantly, right? There's just, you know, I mean, the technology is changing, how people interact with the technology is changing, just the Mm -hmm. rapid pace of being in that environment. Then you, when you're in the TV space, technology is changing, but it changes a little bit more slowly, (laughs) right? Like there's just a little bit more that, you know, goes into making it happen. And so I would say for, for many of us on the inside, we're like, if only we could get just, get <laughs> just down a little bit faster. Um, you know, it's, uh, we, we, you know, our ideas are far more lofty than the technology right. will allow us to do right now. Right. 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 So yes, that's interesting and a, an exciting part of the role, but yeah, I wish it was just a little further. I, <laughs> I want to go back to something you said um, a few minutes ago about growing up in a household where I think you said your parents were activists, right? And you and I are connected on Instagram. So I, I see that, you know, with everything going on recently, you're out and I believe you're out with your kids as well, too. And, and is that something that you've taken from sort of your childhood and what your parents taught you and are passing that on to your kids? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think I've ever thought about it as much as I have recently. Like the, how did I get to this point? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for me, just, it was just normal behavior. So yes, a very activist family. The interesting part of that is also an activist family, but with lots of differing views. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. I think oftentimes people grow up in a family. It's like everyone's, you know, thinking this way. Same what way. I love about the fact that people had different views is it it's forced me to have conversations with my kids to say, here's what people are saying, but you need to do the research to identify whether or not you agree with it. So a perfect example would be, you know, we went out and marched. I don't know maybe it was like four days, five days after George Floyd died before. Mm-hmm. You know, the protest kind of really got off the ground. Mm-hmm. And so we, I had a conversation with my older daughter, who, who's 19, who, who went with me about defund the police. Right. Because if you're going to be walking down the street, chanting something, you have you should know what you're saying and what it, and then decide for yourself if you even really agree with it. Right. Like I wasn't going to tell her she should or shouldn't. And or necessarily give her my opinion of it. I wanted her to be able to understand that there are going to be things that are said that you then need to decide if you really agree with that. And the only way you can really decide that is to actually do the reading and the research and and build up your knowledge base. So that's my approach with them. (laughs) It's to to bring them, expose them, but to also give them the space to make some of their own decisions versus me saying, and this is what we're going to do. And this is what we believe. This is what we say. This is how we say it. Because I truly believe that a lot of people don't know exactly what they're supporting and they may come out still supporting it, but I'm not always convinced that everyone has all the information that they need to have when they're taking on an effort, such as the efforts that we're taking on right now, which are important, timely, important, and worthy of the efforts that we're putting into them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me personally, one of the one of the biggest things I keep talking about internally in terms of at my company, but also externally is as the sort of emotion of the last sort of, you know, six weeks, you know, eight weeks dies down, what are we all doing as individuals, as companies, as a society to sort of sustain some of the, the momentum there? So I, I feel like that's, 
that's super important too. And I, I only bring that up because of what you said in terms of making sure that people understand the context in which they are protesting or chanting something. Because if you don't, there's no way you're going to sustain that passion long term. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Then it is just a moment as opposed to a movement, right? That's really the big, one of the big differences, right? Is right. Just to understand what you're, what you're really trying to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. One I want to go back to, you know, just your sort of career and, and being in the industry, or this could be actually personal as well, too. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever been faced discrimination or unconscious bias or any of those terms, because the answer is yes. But what I would love to hear from you is when you've been faced with something like that, how do you actually handle it? How do you actually move forward and move beyond? In a professional environment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can talk about a professional. Yep. Um, I have to say, I feel very fortunate, Mm -hmm. very fortunate that in my career, I have had incredible mentors. Oftentimes they were my managers who were able to kind of guide me and coach me through what could be an awkward scenario. And so because of that, I think my approach, depending on, depending on the situation, right? So I haven't, I have not experienced anything egregious, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mostly it's, you know, unconscious or, you know, some level of a microaggression, right? Yeah. I generally take the tact, which is not good for everyone, but I tend to call people on it just because that's what's comfortable for me. You know, I'll give you an example, which isn't race related. I actually think it was probably more me being a female than it was um, race, although it could have been. I was one of the only blacks, not certainly not the only black and one of the only women. I was the only black woman, though, at Interactive One on the leadership team, which Mm -hmm. would probably surprise many given that Radio One is a black owned business. But that's the case. And so... It became a little bit of a joke, but it wasn't a joke at first, which was that I would say something in these meetings and nobody would necessarily respond. And then one of my colleagues, one of my non-Black colleagues would say the exact same thing. And everyone said, oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. So the first couple of times it really like bothered me. I kind of would look around like, this is, this is like not okay. So I decided to call them on it in the moment. And I would literally say, I, I think I just said that. It turned into a little bit of a joke of them saying, oh, Maria, now, did you just say that? And, and I would say, no, I didn't say that. You're okay. But next time I will tell you what I did. Yeah. I think the more you let things like that slide, and I think because, you know, people could kind of laugh and it didn't, I was, you know, it didn't feel like I, I wasn't going to HR. Like I wasn't making more of it than it was. I was just acknowledging the fact that some, an idea I just had Someone else is saying and claiming it, not okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's generally been my approach. It seems to be working for me, I guess, in, in, until it's not. But I had a manager, Olivia Smasham at HBO. She was my boss for a long time. And so she was really, she was good at like telling, like I, we could be in a meeting and we would leave the meeting and she would say, Maria, next time speak up more or do this more or don't let them cut you off. And so that was just, and that was early on, early enough on in my career that she gave me the confidence. And I was just thinking about it recently. Somebody was talking, naming um, senior black executives, which all seem to be kind of on this talking trail right now with all this going on. Yeah. 
Um, and it seems to be the same view. <laughs> and I was thinking, and someone, you know, asked me about that. And the reality is that I know most of them, if not all, and a couple of them, we share mentors. We actually have the same mentors. Mm. In all cases, I can say we had people that were like guiding us, pushing us, giving us an opportunity. And so I truly believe so much of what happens, the success of someone, especially someone of color in the corporate environment is determined based upon if they have support. Mm. And if they have someone who's like reaching in, coaching them, guiding them, helping them, giving them an opportunity to have a platform to speak more, et cetera, it's absolutely thinks the difference between win or lose. I, I want to expand on that for a little bit because I think that's those are great insights and great perspective. You know, it seems like a lot of companies are talking about ways to be more inclusive and sense of belonging and diversity. Do you have any suggestions for how, you know, companies can sort of improve there? Because there does seem this to be obviously this, this big wave. And I think a lot of companies are looking for, for people to speak up with ideas that could be helpful. Any insights you could share there on how the, the industry could be a little bit better there? Well, I mean, I think case-by-case case basis, it's about the culture you're building within your organization. And speaking up is about feeling safe, right? And so if you feel safe to speak up, you're going to do that. And so how you make your employees and the teams feel not only safe, but encouraged to do so is really important. And so part of that is about when someone does speak up, like how you're handling that. And is there an opportunity for you to maybe reinforce that, you know, this person spoke up, this is how we handled it, this is what's going on. But I think it's a, it's a behavior that you have to reinforce over time. Inclusion is one of those things that's, it's really tricky when you think about it, right? Inclusion just starts like at such a young age, yeah. right? Like who's sitting at what, which lunch table, yeah. right? Where are the cool kids and which ones aren't the cool kids? And, and who are the nerdy kids? And, you know, my child will tell me, well, if you roll your pants up this way, it means you're this. And if you wear these kind of socks, it means you're that, right? All of those subtleties starts really, really young, mm-hmm. right? And so I tend to think of lack of inclusion is really at the heart of unconscious bias, right? People like to be around people that they're used to, people that they're comfortable with. And so that almost more so than the speaking up really requires you going out of your comfort zone because you have to reach out to someone, pull them in, and it may not be someone who's going to agree with you. It may be that person who's going to push your buttons and you know that that meeting is going to be longer because they're going to ask more questions but their voice is necessary. And so somehow you have to put in place a system that almost requires people to pull people into those conversations and pull people in to feel, once again, comfortable, safe, to have dialogue. I think inclusion is probably a bit, almost in some ways a bigger hurdle than the speaking up part. Because I think, right, especially right now, what we're seeing is the Black community, for sure, leaning in, wanting to speak up, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? There's a strong desire. And so that now is just about giving the platform. But to your point, Corral, it's like, what do you do with it after, right? Like, how do you make this systemic change? 
So that six months from now, that person that spoke up is still being pulled in. The inclusion part is the part that I think that's harder to sustain. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier some, some folks, some mentors. I think I heard a few names and more about situations about how they helped you get through certain things. How does that influence how you sort of help others? And I hate to say sort of like mentor others, but sort of be mm-hmm. a helping hand. You know what I mean? Like maybe mm-hmm. mentor is too strong of a word, but like all of us need somebody to help manage a situation. How has that influenced how you help others? It's super important to me. Like being a mentor, being there for people at all levels is super important to me. It may be my Achilles heel because I actually try to meet with anyone that reaches out to me. It's pretty crazy, but that's mm-hmm. just, it's, it is super important to me. People will send me notes. They're graduating from college. They just want 15 minutes of advice on like how to approach getting a job. And I will do that because I do think it's important. But what I will say about mentor-mentee relationships within the workplace is I often say to people, I learn just as much from them as hopefully they're learning from me. When they describe to me a story or a situation or an event or an experience they're having, it makes me pause to think about, have I done that? Have I experienced that? And so I feel like it makes me a better manager to listen to other people what helps them grow? What's motivating them? What's holding them back, right? Like hearing that from others helps me think about how I want to lead. And so I actually look at it from a, that it's a two-way street, right? I'm going to share with you kind of my perspective, but I'm going to learn so much from hearing you and what motivates you, especially people much younger than I am, because what motivates younger people now is different than when I was that age. And so it just, for me, helps me be a better leader. But I have, you know, some people who are my mentees officially, right? Like they, you know, they they asked me or somehow or another, I signed up for a mentor program. And so they're my official mentees. But I look at anyone who reaches out to me and just wants to chat. We, during this COVID time, I wanted to extend that beyond just myself to my entire direct report leadership team. And so we started this thing called um, Marketing Over Coffee. And so my, my team itself is about 400 people or so. Anybody, no matter who you are, where you are in the country, could request 30 minutes to have coffee, if you will, with anyone on the team. And we kind of chat, we laugh, we said, we don't know, people might not want to talk to us, but it's been overwhelmingly successful. And I will tell you at first, (laughs) my team was a little like, Maria, as if we don't have enough going on, now we got to have coffee with people, right? (laughs) Because it's like we're in COVID, you know, everything's happening. But now they've all come back unanimously and said, that has been by far one of the best things we've done during this time, best use of time. It's nice to just get to know each other in that way. But because I do think it's important to like pull people along in the same way people have given me opportunities, I try to do the same. Isn't that amazing? Physical distance. Wouldn't you actually get a little bit closer? That's right. Yeah, yeah that's, what, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's actually probably the best time to do that now, too, while everyone is separated. It's a way to pull people together. That's right. Yeah. Maria, COVID, mentoring, CMO, 400 people. How are you managing work-life balances or such a thing? Like, how do we do this? This is normally a good question pre-COVID and when COVID's not happening. But how, how are you managing that sort of work-life balance? You know, it's interesting. I have less work-life balance now, and I'm, I'm sure other people are probably saying the same thing, right? It's a little bit like Groundhog's Day, right? You just... So work-life balance is really important to me and has been throughout my career. 
I like to run. I like to work out. Exercise is a big part of my life. I meditate. I've been meditating long before I became a fad. And so all of that's just always been a part of my life. Now I can't seem to find like, you know, meetings are starting at 7.30 a.m. That's usually my meditation time. Like, like everything is interwoven and there's an expectation that because you're home, you are more available. And so things go longer into your day. So it's actually been harder. And, and also with my children, right? Usually I'd say, oh, and they're old enough to, you know, take care of themselves, but they'll start the day asking me, what time is your last phone call? Because in their mind, when my last phone call is done, I'm done. And then, I'm not, then my time is their time versus before I'd say, oh, after work, I'm going to go take this class or I'm going to run and then I'll be home. And so it's a priority for me to, to solve that <laughs> because the work-life balance is super important. Self-care is super important. But, you know, services have been closed, right? I can't go get my mani-pedi. You know, I can't go down Always the street and get my massage. Like... I actually just bought a foot massager, a foot spa the other day right. on Amazon, and right. I, I did it at home because got to do something. That's right. <laughs> and my feet thank you for it. Right. I bet they do. I bet they do. We keep them right. We keep it's, them right. Uh, I mean, the funny thing is that we're all in it together, right? So we all have cuticle challenges going on. <laughs> it's uh, it's right. a real thing. But like that would be a part of work-life balance for me, right? Like grabbing my book and going and sitting and getting a pedicure. But, and like you can't, when you don't have those, you realize how much you relied on, how much you relied on outside kind of opportunities or things, if you will, to help you create your work-life balance, right? Mm-hmm. And personal moments too, that's right? right. So those little personal time, moments. Personal moments, you know, uh, time to reflect even, you know? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. I mean, when this first started, I was really good. I was like all in. I had a great schedule. I was working out every single day. I was meditating. I had like, it was manageable. I think with the addition of the civil unrest yeah. on top of everything right. has just made the last month, I mean, the last, you know, I feel like June was a blur. Mm. Uh, it's just made the last month just more intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think everyone's just, you know, it's, it, you know, because now you're trying to figure out how are we going to get people back into an office? What does that look like? And you're also trying to figure out, okay, how do you create an equitable, sustainable work environment and looking at all the data, right? Like all those, th- right? So it's like, there's a lot that you're grappling with in the course of a day. And it's probably, what, are the, what is the saying? If you don't have time to meditate, it means you need to meditate twice. Mm. Mm. There it is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Maria, I wanted to ask you sort of a, a, another question, right? You know, we are July now, beginning of, of Q3, which means that for the younger generation, we just had a lot of people graduate from college and university, right? A lot of people with marketing degrees that are going to be looking for their first job, right? What advice would you give to someone entering the marketing industry? You know, I will say I've been pleasantly surprised at the number of companies that have started looking for people again. Yeah. Um, when COVID first happened, I think everyone went into a like, hiring pause, hiring freeze. Mm-hmm. But I'm definitely starting to see some movement again. And so if you had asked me three months ago, I would have said... Potentially use this opportunity to go to grad school, 
and not try to navigate all of this during this time. Right. Um, but I actually, I, I don't know that I think that anymore. I mean, that's still an option, right? But I do think, you know, you can pursue a marketing role during this time on board in a company during this time. It's not going to be easy. Yeah. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is the young people, they're used to conversing through video conference or on their phones, you know, FaceTiming, et cetera. So this kind of communication and interaction doesn't really phase them as much right. as it, I think, was kind of, for us, required more of an adjustment. And so I think in some ways, they're probably better prepared to work in their home and be on a video conference and still, uh, and still accomplish what they need to accomplish. I mean, my advice to young people is that we are in an unprecedented time, so there is no playbook, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's no one that can say this is exactly what you need to do right now because it's never been, it's never happened like this mm-hmm. before. Yeah. And so you have to, I think, be open-minded and go down a few different paths to figure out which one is going to feel the best for you during this time, right? Because there's not one slam dunk answer for any, for all individuals. I have a high school senior who just graduated. And so we just went through trying to decide, you know, her freshman year of college, they basically gave her three options, right? She can either be on campus or she can do online school for the whole year, mm. not, not for a semester and come, but for the whole year, or she can take the whole year off. And wow. so, right, those are three very different things. And you have to figure out what feels right for you, what's right. you know, most appealing to you in order to decide, you know, which is going to be your best path forward. Right, right, right. All right, another question here, a fun question I love asking every guest that we have on. Give us the top three apps on your phone. You can't name email, calendar, or text us. Okay, so my number one app is Blinkist. Do you you got to explain that one. No, you got to explain No, no, Blinkist. Uh Uh-oh. So Blinkist is kind of like Quibi, but for books. Yeah, so it's my favorite app because it is a shortened version of books. Mostly nonfiction, mm-hmm. mostly nonfiction books. Mm-hmm. They give you each chapter in a blink. That's why it's called Blinkist. Gotcha. And so it's like perfect. It's like 15 minutes, like a book in 15 minutes. I've gotten through so many great books because of that. I do like Quibi, which is new. So that's kind of mm-hmm. become a little bit of a, of a go-to for mm-hmm. me. And then my other one is probably... It's probably a meditation app. And I have a few. I like Aura. Aura. Um, it's probably what, yeah, that's probably the third app that I would go. But Blinkist is really the only app that I will say outside of the ones you said, which is my text and, you know, so forth <laughs> that I go to on a regular basis. Even if I'm going to the grocery store, I'll put on a quick book. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> well, Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. You know, a lot of our listeners and viewers like to stay in touch and keep the conversation going. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Probably on LinkedIn. They can find me on LinkedIn. I actually do answer my LinkedIn messages. So people can go on LinkedIn and they can reach me there. Um, and that's probably the best way because even in the email, uh, emails, you know, get lost in my email world. So LinkedIn is probably best. Well, thanks again. And thanks everyone for watching and listening. So you can find us wherever you find all your audio and video. Just search for Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks, Maria. Thank you.